This is The Monthly, a podcast presented by The Pad Project. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Monthly, Cycle 4, Part 2. Last week in Part 1, we began speaking to Chandra Bazelko and Kimberly Haven about menstruation in the prison system in the U.S. We discussed how they became part of the menstrual activist space and their personal experiences dealing with menstruation in the prison system. Keep listening to hear part two of cycle four and the rest of our conversation with Chandra Bazelko and Kimberly Haven. Since you've been out, have you seen changes as you've entered the space of being a menstrual um, health expert or however you want to label yourself? Uh, yeah, I have. Well, so my thing was really kind of blew it open. And I, when I tell you, I did not expect, I didn't expect anybody to really even read it. Um, when I wrote that, so that went super viral, right? I still get letters from people who just, you know, stumble upon it now, six years later and say, this really opened my eyes, but there in the United States, we've had, um, the dignity act, right? So that it started as part of, um, dignity for incarcerated women act, which had a, a, a plethora of things that were going to be done if the, if the law passed at the federal level um, to improve the lives of incarcerated women. That was one of them. That bill, as it was written, never actually got voted on, but the um, access to sanitary supplies part of it was put into the First Step Act. So that's part of federal law now, but federal law only applies to federal prisons. So they supposedly have open box policies. Um, here in Connecticut, we have the Act, uh, the Dignity Act. So they're supposed to be, you know, it, free access to whatever supplies women need. I believe it's 13 or 14 other states have done the same, passed the same law. The thing is, and this is something that I would only have understood as I went on in time and like kept working on this issue, is if you had told me in 2015, when I'd only been home a year, oh, there'll be this law and it will be required to give them for free in the quantities that they need, no questions asked that, I would have said, that's terrific, this is great, this will solve the problem. The further I get along, in my work and understanding this is that prisons and jails are kind of law proof by that. I mean, you can legislate all you want, but the people inside of it are going to do what they want anyways, because there's very little oversight. They're totally opaque. Right. So we don't really know. And for something like menstruation, if I tell you today, if I'm menstruating today and say, I can't get a pad by the time I can get that complaint or issue to somebody else, my period is probably over. So it's not, it's not like it's a chronic thing, maybe, you know, routine and then it happens every month, but for a couple of weeks, but um, in terms of like the immediacy of it, if I can't get the help when I need to get that help, I'm not going to get the help for that. Like, there's no way that someone's going to run in on the second day of my period and make sure that I have the supplies I need because I said on the first day I couldn't get it. So that's one of the issues. It's kind of like you're kind of just resigned to the fact that this is not going to change. I believe there's an activist and a lawyer out in California who learned after they passed the Dignity Act that women were still not able to get the supplies that they need. So she confronted the guards and said, you know, what what the law says right now, you're supposed to give her whatever she wants. And they said, in essence, we'll do what we want. And we don't actually care about the law. I mean, they fully admitted that to this lawyer who was confronting them. And she, you know, got really upset and started to, you know, file complaints and stuff like that. It's just that those solutions take so much longer than the problem lasts, you know, like for that one particular person that it's really hard to figure out how to, how to fix this, right? And that's why the longer I get along and, you know, like the more I learn about prisons, even being out of them, is that I think the best solution to the problem of, of menstrual inequity is, in prisons is just to incarcerate fewer women. 
and keep them out of this situation, this, these black holes where we can't control what guards and staff are doing. And, um, and you know, like we can't really help them, at least not in the short term when they need something. Yeah, you can enact all these policies, but if, if these prison staffers aren't going to follow them, what is the point? And if there's no penalty for not following them, again, what is the, like, what, what are we going to do in, in the state capital that affects this? Very little, ultimately. I mean, it's symbolic. It says that this is an important issue, but it doesn't really solve the problem for the woman who's bleeding into her pants in, in, a, in a jail or a prison. So going back a little bit to the bill that you were mentioning, can you talk a little bit about sort of the impact of it and just explain to the listeners a little bit about it? The bill that we passed was a very comprehensive bill. It said that every month that incarcerated individuals needed were to be given free menstrual hygiene products in the quantity that they needed. So basically, you know, we kind of figured out 48, you know, which was the number. But that 48 could be any combination that an individual determined for themselves that they needed. It could be sanitary pads. It could be panty liners. It could be tampons. It could be whatever they needed. But that in addition to those being freely made available, freely given on a regular, consistent basis, that if somebody needed more, that they um, were given access to them. Um, unfettered access, you have what you need. If there was a serious incident, then obviously, you know, 48 was not going to be enough. And, you know, then you might need a medical intervention or a medical diagnosis. But um, so that was great. And it was it was all encompassing. It was absolutely amazing. And then the bill goes into effect. And then we find out that just because the bill went into effect didn't mean that our state prison was actually implementing it. And honestly, this is where advocacy really does kind of play a role. A reporter for The Washington Post called our secretary of corrections and he did a spot check and he determined that, yes, they were not following the law. And so he which he was supportive of. Let me just be real clear about that. Our secretary of corrections was amazing on this issue. Um, and so he issued a directive that, honestly, I couldn't have written better um, if I'd done it myself. And it was very clear about what people were supposed to be provided, when they were supposed to be provided, in what quantities. And so because I maintain regular contact with several people in our state prison, it is now being fully implemented and there have been no more problems. So we haven't had to do drives to get menstrual hygiene products and drive them up to the prison like we were doing before the law was passed. The problem that we have is actually twofold. So we have 24 local jurisdictions in addition to our state prison. And our 24 local jurisdictions, we did a spot visit with one and they said, yeah, we, you know, we make them give them um, pads. And it's like, wait a minute, that that's not good enough. You have to give them their choice, pads, tampons, panty liners. And they were like, no, it just says we have to give them menstrual hygiene products. And it was like, I just happen to have a copy of the bill here. And no, you're wrong. You have to do this. And so they were like, oh, oh, okay. They have now since gotten on board and they are doing the right thing. But again, we have to periodically just pop in and do a PIA and try to get a request for information or try to get eyes and ears on the inside to make sure that they're truly following through. In hindsight, the one piece that I wish that we had included in our bill was some sort of transparency and accountability where they have to report out on the numbers of products that they purchase 
on a regular basis, how they're distributed, that sort of thing. And so now we're thinking about trying to figure out how to amend the bill next legislative session to include that, because it's one thing to pass a bill. But if they don't, you know, I always say this all the time, you know, I can't fight what I can't see and I can't see what they won't show me. And that's why, you know, now we have to go back and and make them report out and be held um, accountable, which they hate to do, by the way. Speaking of accountability and being able to see change, what do you hope to see with how the prison system deals with menstruation in the near future, in the next decade, for example? I would like to see it where it's not a big deal, where, you know, people have the products that they need. You can put a cabinet in a in a main room and people can get what they need. It should be that simple. It should not be tied to having to please, sir, can I have some more beg? It should not be a situation where somebody turns down visits with their family, their children, their lawyers because they don't have what they need. It should be one of those things that is just when you first are you know, in intake. Here's what you, here's a supply for the month. When you leave, here's a supply because when you're released, if you've been released and you've done a period of time, you're not walking out with these products and you're not probably not going to have the resources to get them. Here you go. It is an easy thing to do. This is absolutely a no brainer. And every prison, every jail should adopt that attitude. It is if somebody is in your care, custody and control, you have an obligation to provide for what they need. I'm not talking about you know, something that is a once in a blue moon kind of thing. I'm talking about something that affects, you know, an entire segment of our prison population every single month for as long as someone's in, again, the care, custody and control of the institution. And how can our listeners help to achieve you to achieve that? I think, well, so a lot of when that my article first came out, um, a lot of people were asking me, where can I send either money or supplies to help these women out? And I want to be clear to all the listeners that actually won't work. OK, because if you send it a, uh, like a ton of you know maxi pads, I guess a lot of people did purchase off Amazon and like sent like, you know, cases of stuff to prisons that's considered outside and therefore contraband. So they'll never distribute any of that to the women inside because that's a way to actually distribute drugs or something else if someone were to insert something in there. I'm not saying that's just, this is what people are doing. I'm just saying that's the correctional view of these kind of actions is that we're never letting anything else that we didn't order from a, a supplier that we know into this facility. And then in terms of getting money to people, um, it, it, you'd have to get it into their individual accounts and then to make sure that it went to that rather than something else. It really, I don't see that there's a solution of from generous people on the outside to getting that those supplies to women in women's hands on the inside. What I can say though, is that um, to like, if you really are concerned and offended by this, this issue, I would say larger justice reform issues should attract your attention, right? So how do we keep women who don't really need to be incarcerated from getting into these um, facilities in the first place, bail reform policies that actually favor women. That's something that like, we can't talk about because that's favoring one gender over another, but, Honestly, if a woman has kids and, you know, she has either she's menstruating or what, whatever health issues she has, they're actually, um, I think, a little bit more complicated and significant than men. So I would, you know, bail policies that actually favor and keep women out even more so than men. Um, I would be in favor of something like that. Lower sentences, um, home confinement for women rather than putting them inside. I mean, I know a number of people who committed serious crimes like she deserves accountability and society deserves accountability putting her inside of these facilities where she gets further abused 
is not necessarily the solution. Keeping her maybe at home so that she can't, you know, like, you know, like she really understands the gravity of her actions and her decisions, um, but allowing her to work and be free and get the things that she need, needs medical care, these type of supplies, healthy food, time with contact with her children or other family, that kind of a thing. There are different ways to achieve the same goal. And also, um, I think you probably are aware, the way we do modern corrections, whether it's men or women, um, we are not addressing the underlying issues a lot of times. It's just we're going to be punitive, and that will teach you not to do this again, but you're not addressing the underlying traumas and other problems that lead to so many people doing the things that they do. Um, so uh, there are t if you really are concerned about this, it's not a question of like opening up your wallet as generous as that may be or sending supplies or anything else. It's a question of understanding the larger system, the forces that create it, and how little is gained by housing women in these facilities where they literally have to bleed into their pants because that's the only choice that they have. So that's what I usually try to tell people is like, that's terrific and I really appreciate it, but don't do it because it won't work. <laughs> like the, the, those supplies and that money won't get where it needs to go. But if you look at larger policies and contact lo local lawmakers and let them know, I don't really want women who don't need to, like a 30-day sentence in prison for a woman is useless, right? First of all, by the time she even gets processed and, you know, kind of sorted in the system, she's out anyway. So any kind of rehabilitative program is not even in, uh, there's no chance of that on those low sentences. But there is enough of a chance that she would have her period, have to go through this, be humiliated, have to walk around in stained clothing and that kind of thing. Um, that's, that, that's, that's a real risk, but in terms of improving her life or getting her to think differently about her decisions, it's not going to happen. Those little sentences are a waste of time and money. I've been giving a lot of thought to this and this is what I would love your listeners to do. I would like them to find out wherever they are at their state prison, at their local detention center, what their policies are. Ask to see a written copy of the policies that are in place uh, regarding the issuance of menstrual hygiene products. I would also like to know if they're told we can't give you that information. And I would love them to share that information with us because there are several of us that are working on kind of creating this national model for legislation and implementation. And it would be great to have on the ground advocates that are concerned with the dignity of those that we have incarcerated in our system, having the access to the products that they need. And we need their eyes. We need their ears. We need their mouths. And they can help inform the work that we're doing in their own local jurisdiction and in their state prisons. That's amazing advice. Thank you. Um, and we'll definitely link your um website and email in the description oh, that they can do that um, and then I have one more question and just something I'm really curious about do you think that other countries have a better way that they're handling it like for example to somewhere like a Finland or one of these countries that are traditionally models that a lot of people in the U.S. want to um, you know <laughs> take over yep. and yep. Are there any places that, like, you Scotland? feel that we could model off of after? Mm -hmm. Scotland passed legislation and um, that made these products available freely, not just to those that are incarcerated, but to their entire citizenry. If they needed it, they were made, they're made available to them. And that's what we need to move to. That sort of model is what we need to move to, which is why I say this is not rocket science. This is not hard. 
We just need to force them to do the right thing, which is why I so would love your listeners to reach out to me, call me, send me an email and, you know, connect with me. I'll help you create a questionnaire for your local prisons, for I mean, for your local jails and then for your state prisons, because if we can get this, this is huge. This goes to dignity for everyone that we have incarcerated that needs these products. And it holds a system that is archaic, that is patriarchal, that is rooted in treating women like correctional afterthoughts. Um, this is a way for us to transform um, those systems of oppression. My final question for you, and Rahel might have another one, but <laughs> kind of circling back to what we were talking about earlier, but is there any prison or detention center in the U.S. that is doing it somewhat right? Or are they all failing? I'm sure there are some. I, I, I can speak for the Maryland State Prison. Our Maryland State Prison um, is doing the right thing. They're not reporting out the way that I would like them to, but I, they're not under a mandate to because I haven't asked them to. So there's there's that. But in every conversation that I've been having for the last year with my contacts that are still on the inside, um, there have been no issues. There's no hiccups. There's no distribution issues. There's no access issues. So I would say that under the leadership of our Secretary of Corrections, uh, Rob Green, that um, Maryland has, in fact, uh, the Maryland State Prison has gotten it right and is doing it right. That's great to hear, actually. I'm, I'm very excited to hear that because I hope that, like, every other state can sort of follow after Maryland and follow their example and follow this, like, leadership that um, they're exhibiting. Which- exactly. I, I mean, and I never... I don't it's not that I never, but I am almost loath to ever give corrections officials credit for stuff because then, you know, I can't give them credit. I like to fight them on different things. But on this one issue, um, Maryland Corrections has gotten it right and is doing the right thing, um, at least at our state prison. Our locals are, you know, again, another another issue. Um, but we have 24 of them. And so I'll just continue to battle the 24 that we've got with our with our access teams. But again, it's something that can be done. It's something that must be done. And I'm going to ask all of your listeners to, if you care about this issue, if you're thinking about it right now and you're going, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. You know, next month when, you know, you reach for that box of tampons or sanitary pads or something like that, then I want you to say, oh, yeah, what was that girl's name and uh, number? I need to call her because I need to work on this. We will definitely, definitely Put your information. I will absolutely send the um, the questionnaire to you guys and to anybody else that just even wants to explore what's going on within their own state. Because the other thing that people should remember is that 95% of the people that we incarcerate come home. And so what we do to them, what we don't do for them or we don't do with them, that harm and damage they're bringing back to our communities. And that's another layer of why this issue is so important and so critical. And again, like I said, it's not rocket science. We can do this. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being here with us today and sharing your story. Oh, it's been a pleasure. This is great, guys. By the way, I did not know that you existed. (laughs) <laughs> so um, I'm real. No, I'm I'm excited, and I can share this with people too.
Thank you so much. Um, I learned a lot and I know our listeners will learn a lot from you as well. Uh, and we're so happy to have had you on, on our podcast um, because you are such a kick ass in this space and doing such amazing things. You guys are awesome. I really appreciate the invitation and, you know, I would love to connect with any of your listeners and certainly to keep in contact, you know, and as we start knocking these states into, you know, doing the right thing, it would be great to be able to hold them up as well. Um, the more we get people doing the right thing, the more it forces the others to, uh, to also do the right thing.